chapter 2. Now, just to take a minute for a review, remember the book of Daniel is divided. We have divided the book of Daniel into three major sections. First of all, there's the introduction, and that's chapter 1, and you had the introduction last time. The second is uh, what we may call very briefly the nations, with an S on the end of it, the nations, the Gentile nations. That's Daniel chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. The dominion, character, succession, and destiny of Gentile nations. Daniel chapter 2 through 7. And then third, we have the, um, we have the prophecies regarding the nation. That is the nation of Israel. Daniel's chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Now that division follows along what line, may I ask? From our study the week before last, that outline follows what point in the book of Daniel? Well, it follows the language division. Daniel chapter 1 is written in Hebrew. Daniel chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 is written in Aramaic. And then in Daniel 8, Daniel 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 is written in Hebrew once again. Most men divide that book along that line. Daniel 1 is introduction. Daniel, writ, uh, Daniel 2 through 7, the Gentile nations, because it's written in Aramaic. And Daniel 8 through 12, uh, dealing with the nation of Israel, because it's written in the Hebrew language. Look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 4. Daniel chapter 2, verse 4. Daniel 2, 4, then spake the Chaldeans to the king. Now, you've got Syriac. In my Bible, I've got Aramaic. That's what it should be. Then spoke the Chaldeans to the king in Aramaic. From this point on, from the middle of verse 4, all the way over to the end of Daniel chapter 7, uh, the book is written in Aramaic. It's the only book in the Bible that it's not written in Hebrew. There are a couple of verses in the Chronicles that are written in Aramaic. But apart from that, uh, Daniel is the only book that's written in Aramaic, and almost half the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic. And uh, those prophecies that deal with Gentile nations are written in Aramaic. Those prophecies that deal specifically with the nation of Israel, chapters 8 through 12, are written in Hebrew. Now, today we're going to study Daniel chapter 2. Here's the first dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has two dreams, one in Daniel 2 and one in Daniel 4. Here's the first dream of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and we call it the prophecy of the great metallic image, or the prophecy of the image and the stone. You have it on the top of that outline, the prophecy of the great metallic image. Now, here's the first great prophecy of Daniel, the prophecy of what I believe is the prophecy of Gentile world history, God's program for the Gentiles. And uh, the foundation of all the other prophecies in Daniel, this is the foundation of all the other prophecies in Daniel. Now, this same preview of Gentile world history is found also in Daniel chapter 2. I hope you hear, heard that. Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, we have the same period of time covered, the period of Gentile world history. Daniel chapter 2, it's under the symbol of a great image. In Daniel chapter 7, it's under the symbol of four great beasts. In Daniel chapter 2, we have the Gentile world powers as the king saw it, as Nebuchadnezzar saw it. It was a great image to cast fear into the heart of man, something perhaps to be worshipped. But in Daniel chapter 7, God saw these same four Gentile world powers, but he saw them as four ravenous beasts. Nebuchadnezzar looked at them as a humanist would look at them, a great man. God looks upon them as four uh, destructive, ravenous beasts. And that's given to us in Daniel chapter 7. And obviously, Daniel chapter 7 helps us to understand Daniel chapter 2. The outline of God's program for the period of Gentile supremacy and the chastisement of Israel is given to us in Daniel chapter 2. 
Now, what we're going to do is take up um, five parts. I divided this into five parts. You see that on the outline? The dream of Nebuchadnezzar and the inability of the wise men to interpret. Second, the request of Daniel. Let me go in. Give me time to interpret. Third, the prayer of Daniel for a revelation of the dream. Four, Daniel's unfolding the dream and its interpretation of the king. And five, the promotion of Daniel, the end of the chapters as Nebuchadnezzar promised. Now, we're going to spend most of our time on the fourth point. So let's begin and read the Daniel chapter 2, 1 to 13, and that's about all that we'll do is simply read it. Here's the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and the inability of the wise men to interpret. Chapter 2, verse 1. And the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep went from him. And so the king uh, commanded to summon the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. This is a common thing in an oriental court. And the king said to them, I've dreamed a dream. Now here he's, he was troubled with many dreams, but he's focusing on one dream. I've dreamed a dream and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spoke the Chaldeans to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. That was a normal salutation. We'd say hello. He said, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. So the king answered the Chaldeans, and this knocked them off their feet. The thing is gone from me. The thing is gone from me. Now, most translations translate that a different way. And I want to make this point. Most translations translate it by saying something to the effect, the thing is certain. The King James translation would indicate that the king did not remember the dream. And he wanted the Chaldeans to tell him the dream because he forgot it, and then also to tell him the interpretation. The other translations would say, in effect, the thing is certain, would indicate that the king did know the dream, but he wasn't going to tell it to the Chaldeans to test them. See, it wouldn't be very difficult for a man to, uh, for the king to give him a dream and then to ask them to give him, uh, them to give him the interpretation because they could dream up some wild interpretation. But he wanted to test their powers. Were they really in contact with the God? So he asked them not only to tell the interpretation, but also to tell the dream. He would have some test of control over the dream. He wouldn't have any test of control over the interpretation. So uh, the inference is that he knew both the dream and the interpretation. When the King James says the thing is gone from me, that's not quite an exact translation. It's the thing is certain. The thing is certain. He knew what the dream was, and I think the evidence from here on indicates. Else they would have come up to save their necks. If they thought he didn't know the dream to save their necks, they would have come up with some sort of interpretation, and the king wouldn't have known whether that was right or wrong, you see. But they knew, he knew, and they knew that he knew the dream. And consequently, since he knew the dream, and he asked for them both the dream and the interpretation, and he'd have control of it. He'd know whether they're telling the truth or telling the lie. And I think commentators are divided on this, but I think that that's proper and correct. And the translation is probably more accurate. So it's not, the thing is gone for me, I've forgotten it, but the thing is certain. I know it, but I'm not going to tell you. So we read in verse 5, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the thing is certain. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation of it, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a refuse heap. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation of it. Well, that kind of stopped them in their tracks. They had never asked that before, and so they answered him and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream. Now, you see, they wouldn't even ask that. If the king had said to them, my dream's gone, I don't know it. But the very fact that they asked him 
let thy servants tell, uh, uh, let the king tell thy servants the dream, indicates that they thought he knew the dream. So they said, they answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream. We will show the interpretation of it. The king answered and said, I know of a certainty that you want to buy some time. You're stalling for time. You want to gain some time because you see the thing is not gone from me, but is certain with me. The thing is certain with me. But if you will not make known unto me the dream, there's but one decree for you. For you have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and you shall know, and I shall know, that you can show me the interpretation. The Chaldeans answered before the king. They are very tactful here, but they are very... Uh, they wanted the king to understand clearly their position. So the Chaldeans answered before the king and said, There's not a man upon the earth that can reveal the king's matter. Therefore, there's no king, lord, nor ruler that asks such thing of any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. And it's a rare thing that the king requires. There's no other that can reveal it before the king except the gods, and their dwellings not with men, so we can't get it from them. For this cause, the king was angry, was very furious, he commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And here's where Daniel comes in. He's considered one of the wise men. And they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. So there's the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and the inability of the wise men to interpret. So we have the second thing. The request of Daniel. Verse 14. Then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, and also the chief executioner. Here's the man that's going to have to round all these astrologers up and put them to death. So Daniel answered, uh, he answered with counsel. He is talking to the right man, boy. He is talking to the man that's going to take off his head. So Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon, that he has gone forth to gather them up to slay them. It's dubious that any of them ever got slain. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree so hasty from the That is, why is the king acting in such haste? Then Arioch told Daniel what had taken place. Then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time. Uh, that is, Daniel asked Arioch to give him an audience with the king. And Arioch, who didn't, wasn't necessarily inclined to killing all these astrologers and wise men, was happy to give Daniel a chance. So he gave him an audience with the king. So Daniel went in, desired of the king that he would give him time and that he would show the king the interpretation. And the king granted that. Probably cooled down a little by this time. So Daniel went down to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his three companions, that they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning the secret that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. That is, they prayed. They prayed. They prayed. We got three things here. We got Daniel goes home. What would be, he didn't panic, he prayed, see. The wise men panicked, Daniel prayed. You see, you can do three things when you face a problem like this. You can panic, or you can quit, or you can pray. Jesus said men ought always to pray and not to faint. And to faint means to quit. When I face a real hard, difficult problem, then I can do one of three things. I can quit, I can run away from it. The problem with that is, I take myself. And when I take myself, I'm going to find the same problem somewhere else. So I can quit. And the other thing about quitting is that I develop the habit of quitting. I can quit. Or second, I can panic. And that's what the wise men did. Or I can do what Daniel did. And that is, I can pray. What does the Bible say? The effectual, fervent prayer of a wise man righteous man, rather, availeth much. So Daniel and his companions prayed. Second, God moved in answer to that and gave, him the, gave them the uh, secret. Verse 19. Then, 
What's the first word in your Bible? What is it? What is the first word in verse 19? Then, when? When they prayed. When they prayed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. James 5.16. That's a big word there in the book of Daniel. What is the first word in your Bible? And verse 9, then. So you ought to circle that. That's a big word, then. When Daniel and his companions prayed. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in the night vision. And the third thing we have here is that Daniel blesses the God of heaven. Beautiful prayer, beautiful psalm. Let's read it. Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Uh, he, uh, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom, omniscient, and might, omnipotence are his. He changes the times and the seasons. He's sovereign. He removes kings and sets up kings. That's the doctrine of God's providence. He gives wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to those who know understanding. He reveals the deep and secret things. He knows what's in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who hast given me wisdom and might, and hast made it known unto me what we desire of thee, for thou hast made known unto us the king's matter. And so we, have, we come to the fourth thing now. I skipped the third. I read it, but didn't give it the outline. We come to the fourth thing, the important thing, Daniel's unfolding of the dream and its interpretation. Now, he gets an audience of the king. Let's read that 24 to 30. Then Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon. See, he's the chief executioner. He went in and said unto him, Daniel said to Arioch, Don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Now Daniel's in the saddle, see. He's given Arioch the orders. Don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will reveal unto the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste. He brought him in speedily and said thus unto the king. Now notice that. Old Arioch is a time server. He figures he can get in a little on that reward. So what does he say? What are the first three words? Yeah, I have found. See, he's going to get a little of that reward. So he says to the king, O king, after a long, hard, diligent search, a lot of extra hours, I didn't punch the clock at 4.30. I stayed on it, worked hard. I found a man. I found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation of it? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, yes, king, I have an outstanding IQ. <laughs> Now, that's not what he said. You notice he's going to give all the glory to God. He, first of all, he describes the impotence of the astrologers. The secret which the king has demanded, the wise man, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, cannot reveal unto the king. But, but, there's a God in heaven who reveals secrets, makes known to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream... And thy visions, thy head, the visions I had, upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereafter? And he who reveals secrets makes known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any other living person. But for their sake, that shall make known the interpretation of the king that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. Now, there are two important clauses I want you to observe. One in verse 28, one in verse 29. One in verse 28 uh, tells us the uh, nature of this prophecy. Verse 28, For there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and makes known to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what shall be, and what's the next word? Latter days. That's the time frame of this prophecy. What shall be made known unto thee in the latter days? The latter days. That's the nature of it. What shall be known, made known unto the king in the latter days? 
Now that term, the latter days, is a term that comes up again and again in the Old Testament. It's an eschatological term that comes up in the New Testament. No wonder if you look up here. That term, latter days, is a term that's used throughout the Old Testament and also the New Testament. Now the New Testament speaks of the last days also, not quite the same. But this term, very common in the Old Testament, the, la it, the latter days, is an eschatological term. That is, it's a prophetic term. It's found in the in um, it's found in Deuteronomy. It's found, I think, in uh, in Exodus. No, it's found in Deuteronomy. It's found in the Pentateuch several times. It's found in some of the uh, books of Samuel and Chronicles. And when that term "latter days" is found there, it usually refers to the monarchy period, which lay ahead of uh, Moses and Joshua, the period of the kings. 1,000 to 500 B.C. But then we find it uh, uh, over a dozen times, over a dozen times, in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And when we find that term, the latter days, in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, the term refers to the days of the coming and the age of the king, the messianic king. It's always in the context of a prophecy that deals with the coming of the king. And I happen to believe it's the second coming of the king, the second coming of Jesus Christ. It always is in the context of the coming of the king and as his kingdom of power and glory that's universal. So this period of time, this prophecy, as far as time scope is concerned, begins with Nebuchadnezzar, thou art the head of gold, say uh, 600 B.C., and runs all the way down until the stone, which is Jesus, comes dramatically and smites the kingdoms of this world. And that stone, representing the kingdom of Jesus Christ, dramatically and quickly and cataclysmically becomes, covers the whole earth, becomes the whole mountain, covers the whole earth. See? And I happen to believe that refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So this prophecy, if you look here now, this prophecy covers the period of time from Nebuchadnezzar all the way up to the second coming of Christ and the establishment of his messianic kingdom upon this earth. That's its nature. Second, look at verse 29. Verse 29, it's, it's, uh, yeah, that's its scope, latter days. Its nature is given to us in verse 29. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed, what shall come to pass here after the king had gone to bed he was worried what is going to happen when i die what's going to happen to this kingdom when i die well this dream is the answer to that see what's going to happen to this kingdom when i die well this dream is the answer to that this is what's going to happen and the and the uh, um and the uh, and, and daniel uh, dream is in a sense an answer to that now let's come to the unfolding of the dream the dream itself. Let's come to verse 36. Verse 31. Now we have in verses 31 to 35, we have the dream. And in verses 36 to 44, we have the interpretation. Verses 31 to 35 is the dream. Verses 36 to 44, the interpretation. Now there are two parts to the dream. Let's look at it. First part's the image, and the second part's the stone. 31, 32, 33, the image. 34, 35, the stone. Thou, king, sawest, and behold, a great image. That is an image of a man. It's a great image. Uh, loomed large. In the next chapter, Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is so enamored by this image that he goes out and makes a copy of this image and puts it up in the plain of Dura, and commands that everybody go out to the plain of Dura and worship that image. So it made a tremendous impression upon Daniel. The great image, lube, large. Uh, I don't know how large. doesn't tell us. But much larger than a normal man. That is in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. It's a great image. Its brightness, his brightness was excellent, stood before thee. And the form of it was terrible. It was awesome and terrifying. Now, there are four parts to the image. Number one, the image's head was of fine gold. Number one, its breast and its arms were of silver. Number two, 
its belly and its thighs of bronze. Number three, its legs of iron, its feet part of iron and part of clay. Now that's four, not five. We know that's four because we skip down to verse 40. What kingdom do you have in verse 40? Fourth kingdom, and there's no kingdom of toads. See, the fourth kingdom includes both the legs of iron and the toes of iron and clay. So going back to verse 32 and 33, we have an image. The image's head was of fine gold, its breast and its arm of silver, belly and thigh of bronze, its legs of iron and its feet part of iron and clay, a picture of a man. And you'll notice two things, that it, as the image goes down, it declines in preciousness. The gold, obviously, the most precious, the iron, the least precious. So it increases, it decreases in preciousness, it increases in strength. The image is marked by these two qualities. It's a human form and it has four parts to it. Now, um, looking at this image, let's go to the, uh, the second part of the image, which is the, is the stone, verse 34. Thou sawest until the stone was cut out without hands which smote the image upon its feet that were of iron and clay, and broke them to pieces. Then with the iron, clay, bronze, silver, gold broken to pieces together, became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. The wind carried them away, that no place of sound for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now here's the stone that was cut out supernaturally, cut out without hands. And of course, all interpreters, all conservative interpreters, Acknowledge that this stone refers to Jesus Christ. The stone was cut out with half hands. Nobody doubts that. Even liberals, even the liberals tend to interpret the stone of Christ. And all conservatives, whatever may be their prophetic persuasion, agree that this stone is Jesus Christ. And uh, becomes the great mountain, and over in Daniel chapter 7, the parallel, it's obvious that this stone is Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice four things quickly. First of all, where did the stone smite the image? Where did the stone smite the image? At the feet. That means that these, these, uh, these uh, four metals represent, this image represents Gentile world power. Then the stone smites the image in its feet indicates that the stone smites these Gentile world powers in its final form. Where did the stone smite the image? Not in the head, not in the chest, not in the thighs, in the feet. Now, if this image represents the course of Gentile world history from Nebuchadnezzar's day to the second coming of Christ, and the stone smote the image in the feet, and that means that if the stone is Jesus, then Jesus Christ is going to destroy Gentile world power. He's going to smite Gentile world power in its final form, down in the feet. Second, how did the stone smite the image? Suddenly, catastrophically, quickly, or was it kind of a gradual thing that it melted away over a period of long time? Now, come on, answer me. Suddenly, cataclysmically, catastrophically, or did it just kind of hit the stone and it gradually melted away? Which one? Suddenly. Now, that's important. You're going to see why. Because however Jesus Christ destroys these Gentile world powers, he's going to destroy it cataclysmically, suddenly, catastrophically, not slowly, gradually, or over the course of 2,000 years by the preaching of the gospel. But it's destroyed suddenly, cataclysmically, stone cut out. And it doesn't roll down. Apparently, it's more like a flying missile. Third, how much destruction was there of the image? Complete or was it just partial? Complete destruction. It was broken in pieces. It became like the chaff, fine sand. It became like fine sand or chaff, and when you looked for it, there was no place found for it. It was destroyed. Then, 
Notice, after the image was destroyed, A-F-T-E-R, after the image was destroyed, the stone became a mountain and filled the whole earth. After the image was destroyed, not until, after the image was destroyed, then the stone became a mountain filled the whole earth. See? Now look at verse 35. Then with the iron, verse 34, the stone smites the image. Verse 35, the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together. Came like the chaff. The stone gradually destroyed, as the gr stone gradually destroyed these kingdoms, and they began to melt away. Then the stone itself became a great mountain, and it slowly and gradually took the place of the image. Now the stone is Jesus. All conservatives agree that the stone is Jesus. All conservatives agree that the stone becoming a great mountain and filling the earth represents the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The question is, when was that kingdom established? At his first coming or at his second coming? Well, those who tell us that it, that it took place at his first coming say that he gradually smote the stone, and while the Gentile world powers have been disintegrated over the last 2,000 years, the kingdom of Jesus Christ has been growing gradually over the last 2,000 years. But as a matter of fact, the kingdoms of this world haven't been disintegrated. And as a matter of fact, there are more unconverted pagans today than there were in the days of Paul and Jesus. See? But more than that, verse 34 and 35 indicate that it's not until the image was broken down, ground down to fine chaff, and blown away, that after that, what happened? The stone became a mountain, filled the whole earth. The kingdoms are gone before the kingdom that's to follow it, the fifth kingdom, takes its place. They don't develop parallel. They develop successively. They don't develop parallel, they don't develop parallel, one moving down parallel and one going up parallel. They don't develop parallel, they develop successively. One's gone before the other begins. The feet are destroyed, the image destroyed, blows away before the stone becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. See? So, those are four important points. The stone smote the image where? At its feet, in the final form of Gentile world power. Secondly, it smote it suddenly, catastrophically, cataclysmically, not slowly and gradually, a la by the preaching of the gospel. Third, it, 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 it ended in the complete destruction of this image, and it wasn't until after fourth, after the image was destroyed, that the stone became a mountain. Now we come to the interpretation. Verse 36. Well, you got two words in verse 36. What are those two words? What are the two words? Dream and what? Well, the word dream looks back to 31 to 35, and interpretation looks forward to 36 to 45. See? Now this is the dream, and we will tell its interpretation before the king. So we got the dream, 31 to 35, and we got, secondly, what? Interpretation. Now, unfortunately, what we got to do is we got to have the interpretation of the interpretation. <laughs> See? And, of course, I, I recognize that there are good Bible believers who divide on this point. I recognize this. There are three, uh, well, we'll get into this and we'll see. There are three major approaches to this. All right, let's begin at verse 36. This is the dream, and we will tell its interpretation before the king. Thou, O king, art king of kings. The God of heaven has given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. Wherever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field, and the fowls of the heavens, hath he given to thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. Now, who's, whom does that head of gold represent? Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar. But in those days, the emperor stood for the empire itself. No, no later. But in those days, the emperor uh, epitomized and represented the empire. 
How do we know that? Well, look at verse 39. And after these shall rise, what's the word before the word kingdom? Another kingdom. Another, which means that the first one was also a kingdom. So here we have, now I'm not a, neither a, uh, boy, that is, I tell you that, that's a head. I'm not a, uh, <laughs> um, uh, neither a, uh, an artist nor the son of an artist. All right, well, we might as well go ahead and put it. He's smiling, <laughs> and he doesn't have any neck. Now, um, uh, boy, I'm going to get his arms out here uh, somehow. All right, here's the head. The head, the head represents uh, whom? Does that represent? Ne Nebuchadnezzar was identified with what? Uh, with what empire? Babylon. Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar, the head represents Babylon. And Babylon reigned from about 605 to about uh, 539, Babylon. All right, the next, that's the first one, Babylon. Thou art the head. And the, pro uh, the obvious, that obvious proof is verse 38. And elsewhere also, but we, we don't have time. And he says, thou art, the, thou art this head of gold, means that Nebuchadnezzar symbolized the Babylonian empire. I think Hitler said the same thing. All right, the head is Babylon. Number two, we have the second one, which is the chest and arms. Chest and arms. Now, let's read verse 39. And after thee shall rise another kingdom inferior to thee. Now, what kingdom is that? What kingdom is that? Well, let's turn to Daniel chapter 5, 28. We'll find out what kingdom it is. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 5, 28. Daniel 5, 28. Thy kingdom is divided and given to thee who? Medes and Persians. So we got the interpretation. If we believe in verbal inspiration, we believe this book is inspired, which I'm assuming that we do, then we got the interpretation. The second kingdom is interpreted. It's the Medes and the Persians. It's also given to us in Daniel chapter 8, verse 20. Daniel chapter 8, verse 20. And as a matter of fact, he gives us a third kingdom in Daniel chapter 8, 20 and 21. And the ram which thou sawest, having two horns, I described, he's describing uh, um, uh, to King Belshazzar here, the last, the last man prior to the fall, he's describing to King Belshazzar what's going to happen after his reign, when his kingdom falls. And he says, the ram which thou sawest that's going to follow you, the ram which thou sawest having two thorns, these are the kings of whom? Who does it say? Media Persia. So the second one is the Medo-Persian, Media Persia, Medo-Persia Empire. That's the second one. And that reigned from about 539 to about 331, the conquest, 331, the conquest of Alexander. Now, when you got your finger there, in Daniel chapter 8, who is the third kingdom? Go back, keep your finger there, and go back to Daniel 2.39. Daniel 2.39. And after thee, Nebuchadnezzar, shall arise another, a second kingdom, inferior to thee. Now, who is that second kingdom? Medo-Persia. And another third kingdom of bronze which shall bear rule over all the earth. Well, now, who is that? Well, go back over to Daniel chapter 8, 20, 21. Daniel 8, 20 and 21, and see who follows Medo-Persia. And Ram, verse 20, which thou sawest, having two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the rough goat is the king of whom? Greek. So there's, there we got, we got the interpretation. And the great horn that's between his eyes, the first king. That's Alexander the Great. Verse 22, now that being broken, whereas before stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of that nation, but not in his power. When Alexander the Great died in 323 B.C., his kingdom was divided four ways. General Seleucus took Syria, and General Ptolemy took Egypt, and the last of the Ptolemies was Cleopatra, or Cleopatra. Now we go over to Daniel chapter 11. We have the same, 
interpretation. Daniel 11, verse 1 and 2. Daniel 11, verse 1. Also I, in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. And now I will show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all, and by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. And that man of whom he's speaking there is Xerxes. Xerxes the Great of history, who is also the king, the art of Xerxes, of the book of Esther. And he'll stir up all the realm of Greece. So we got the two empires there, Medo-Persia and Greece. So going back to Daniel chapter 2, verse 39. We have the uh, belly and thighs. The belly and thighs. Who do the belly and thighs represent? Yes, the Greco-Macedonian Empire. The Greeks. The Greco-Macedonian Empire, which reigned from about 331. Now, this is a little difficult to determine the precise date. Let's say 146. B.C. Rome, uh, Rome conquered um, uh, the, um, my mind slips me right now, the great empire of North Africa and also two great states. One of them was Corinth. The city of Corinth was destroyed by Rome in 146 B.C. and Carthage in North Africa. And Rome moved in to world power about 146 B.C. So we got three. The head of gold represents Babylon. 605 to 539. The chest, the Medo-Persian, 539 to 331. The belly and thighs, Greece, 331 to 146. Now let's go back to Daniel chapter 2, verse 40. We come to the fourth empire. Daniel chapter 2, verse 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things. And as iron that breaks all these shall it break in pieces, and bruise, it will crush and destroy. Whereas thou sawest the feet and toes part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron. For as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, and as the toes of the feet were part of iron, part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not adhere one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Now, here's the fourth one. Legs, iron, and feet, iron, and clay. Now, who does this represent? All right, Rome. We believe it's Rome. Now, let me say here that all conservatives, whether they're premillennial or postmillennial or amillennial, all agree that these four empires are like this. The head is Babylon, the chest is Medo-Persia, uh, the belly and thighs represent Greece, and the legs, iron, and the feet of iron clay represent Rome. Now, the liberals do this, and I might as well take a minute because we're going to have to continue our study next week. We won't get through it. What we need to do is going to take about another hour. And I want to take two passages, two sections, because uh, this is the basic prophetic uh, scripture in the book of Daniel as far as the Gentile world nations are concerned. Now, if you look up here, what the liberals do, because the liberals do not admit predictive prophecy. You remember the first day of our class, or the third day of our class, when we saw the introduction of the book of Daniel, I said that the liberals don't believe that the book of Daniel was written by Daniel himself. The liberals say that the book of Daniel was written by a man who lived about 165 B.C. Daniel lived 600 to, say, to 530, 620, 620 to about 530. But the liberals say it's impossible that Daniel could have foreseen the... Uh, Medo-Persian, well, he could have seen that. He was there when it fell, Daniel chapter 5. But he couldn't have seen Greece. 
and he couldn't have seen Rome. Why? Because it's impossible for a man to predict the future. The liberals deny predictive prophecy. So how do they get around this? Well, the way they get around this is by saying that the head represents Babylon, the chest represents the chest, represents the Median Empire, the belly and thighs represent the Persian Empire, and the legs represent the Grecian Empire. And the Grecian Empire came into existence about 331 B.C. and went out about 146, and so it was in decline when the writer of the book of Daniel wrote this book about 165 B.C. And by saying that, you see, they get around all predictive prophecies. Nothing is predictive in the book of Daniel. Now, if we take the Bible itself and accept the Bible's interpretation, it's obvious already, it's obvious already that the head is Babylon. The Bible says that. It's obvious that the breast and the arms are Greek. The Bible indicates that in Daniel 8, uh, uh, Medo-Persia. The Bible indicates that in Daniel 5, 29, Daniel 8, 20 and 21, and Daniel 11, 1 and 2. And what it indicates it, it always puts those two together, doesn't it? Is that right? Daniel 5, 29, when the empire fell, it fell to who? Medes and Persians. In Daniel chapter 8, 20, that, that ram is represented by the Medo-Persian. 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 They're always put together. So the book of Daniel itself, we say, what do the liberals do? Well, they simply discount that. They say it's wrong. They discount. It doesn't belong in the text. But it's obvious that it is Medo-Persian. The third represented, represent Greece. Now, they're all named. The fourth one isn't named. Fourth wasn't a name. But it's an obvious fact of history. There's only one empire, and this has to be an empire. There's only one great empire that followed the Greco Macedonian Empire. When Alexander died, uh, when Alexander died, it says that about Alexander's empire at the end of verse 39 that his rule covered the whole earth. You know what Alexander did? He took his father, had Philip of Macedon, had consolidated all of Greece and turned that empire, that is the kingdom of Greece, all of Greece, over to Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great introduced some new military techniques. Among them was to take an army corps of engineers with him. He marched across the Hellespont, uh, went down through Asia Minor and conquered the kingdoms of Asia Minor, moved into Syria, conquered Syria, uh, moved down to uh, Jerusalem, and the high priest went out and welcomed Alexander the Great, gave him the key to the city virtually, he went down and captured Egypt and lay Egypt under tribute. Why did he do all that before he went? He came across this way to Syria. Why didn't he go this way? Because you have to lay hold of that land bridge. Syria and Palestine constitute the land bridge between three empires. And that's why the Antichrist is going to focus his attention on Syria and Palestine. That's the land bridge. And historically, if any, if any uh, military dictator wants to move from the west to the east, he's got to secure the land bridge. So Alexander went down, captured Syria, Palestine, Egypt. Then he went back north, went down the Fertile Crescent, conquered Persia, and wreaked revenge for what Xerxes had done 150 years before that, 480 B.C. Now, you remember reading about it in the Battle of Thermopylae 150 years ago. He marched down and devastated the Persians. And then he marched east to India, and he got as far as the Indus River. And his soldiers mutineered against him. They wanted to go back home. He was a great dynamic leader, but he could only take them so far. And so he, they, they mutinied when they got to that point. So they had to turn around and start back again. And on the way back, Alexander, who drank and drank heavily, was virtually an alcoholic, contracted a high fever, and died on the march 
back home to Greece and never saw what he envisioned, and that's one great world empire. Now, when he died, he divided his empire into four parts. Uh, the West had two parts, <clears throat> Egypt, Assyria, one part, and what lay east, and that was given to General Ptolemy, whose father was Antiochus, and General Ptolemy named 13 cities after his daddy, and they're called Antioch. We got two of them in the New Testament. And he gave to General Ptolemy Egypt, and the Greeks ruled Egypt for about 300 years. And Cleopatra was the last in the line of the Ptolemies to rule Egypt. When she died, the Greek rule of Egypt was over. <clears throat> the, and then the Romans took over. And historically, that's a fact. Now, a fact of history, not only facts of the Bible, but facts of a textbook. You pick up any textbook in history, and I've got about five textbooks on ancient history, and every one of them will say uh, that uh, every one of them will review history, will indicate but after the Greco-Alexander, Greco-Macedonian Empire, the Roman Empire followed. And the only description we've got, the only empire that, that fits it, is, um, is the Roman Empire. Now, what is, I want to notice, uh, I want to just look at a couple of things here, just to show them to you. I'm not going to explain them. Notice the strength, iron. What does that speak of? Notice there are two divisions, two legs. Notice the feet and the toes. What is the symbolism of the two legs of iron and the feet and the toes, the ten toes made of clay? And what is the symbolism? And when does it take place that the stone smites the image in its feet and the stone becomes the great mountain of the king? Well, we'll take that up next time. Now, Want to make a couple announcements? If everybody will be quiet, we can turn this off, Mr. Campbell.